word why. What a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. A key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Well, what an incredible treat. You are listening to Dr. Rod Berger. This is Creative Cons. Uh, we are, we're in for a treat today. I'm speaking with Dr. Alvy Ray Smith, who kindly off air said, since I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, here in the United States, I can call him Alvy Ray, but we'll, we'll go with Alvy. <laughs> Cause uh, I don't know about your country music skills, Alvy, but I sure know about your skills, uh, in the world of creative arts. Uh, you know, look, it's 2021, Alvy. I know you've got a new book that just came out in August, a biography of the pixel by MIT Press. Give me, let's start with that. Let's talk a little bit about the book. Let's talk about the history of the pixel and and where are we sort of in in the growth chart, if you will, um, of the pixel in your estimation. All right. So let me just make an opening observation. Nearly all pictures in the world are now made of pixels. In fact, because of the explosion, the digital explosion, nearly all pictures that have ever existed are made of pixels. You have to go to museums or kindergartens or places like that to see these old analog pictures, right? But so by surprise, most people don't know what a pixel is. So that just didn't quite seem right. We're swimming we're, as a, a race of human beings. We're swimming in an ocean of zettapixels, I calculate, estimated once. And that's 21 zeros. And uh, <laughs> nobody knows what these are. And yet we're, I mean, you and I right now, we're, we're zooming. This is, this, this is. This is digital light, I call it. Pictures made of pixels. So what is it? So I spent the last 10 years writing this book to explain to the ordinary person without, in other words, I skipped the math intuitively what these things are. They aren't what people think they are. They aren't little squares, just for starters. So talk about the relationship with the pixel, because I think you're exactly right. I feel like you're actually speaking to me because I would not be able to speak I think intelligently or coherently about sort of what makes up a pixel, right? The composition of the pixel, right? I can see it in combination, in relationship, sort of in dance or in presentation, in animation, to your point that even the technology that is allowing us to speak right now, but help me understand it, bring it to life. What's the personality of a pixel? How, what was it like in the beginning and how has it changed or matured? Well, in fact, a lot of people haven't understood, including many of my colleagues over the over the decades, haven't exactly understood what it is, and uh, which leads to you know uh, pretty good stories in my book. Um, it's it all started. The idea started with Joseph Fourier in the about the French Revolution. He was this genius who told us that the world's all music. You can add up these. Waves, very regular waves of different frequencies, in other words, how fast it wiggles, and different amplitudes, how high these waves crest, to get any sound. We kind of know that about music, that it's just a sum of waves of different frequencies and amplitudes, but all sound also can be described that way. No matter how erratic, you know, it could be construction noise, or it could be your child's voice, or, you know. <laughs> Pictures 
are the same thing. You can add up, uh, if you, if you think of a corrugated, uh, building, the corrugated metal building, that waving piece of metal is one, is an example of Fourier's two-dimensional waves. You can add two-dimensional waves together of different frequencies, different amplitudes to get any picture. That's the key thought. He proved it about 1800, let's say. Fascinating story, this guy, but let's don't talk about him right now. The next big idea that came along was the sampling theorem. And I want people to know the sampling theorem. It's what the entire modern digital world, media world, is based on. What you and I are doing right now is based on the sampling theorem. Um, and the pixel is the sort of the atomic element of the sampling theorem. So I point out that this guy, this Russian guy, this Russian communist yet, Vladimir Kotelnikov, in 1933 said, all right, if you have an arbitrary um, picture, so it's a two-dimensional signal, in other words, brightness versus space dimensions, you can sample that regularly in a certain way and throw away everything but the samples. So just it just takes a moment to absorb that. Basically what Kotelnikov said was you can ju- you can represent an infinity of information with just the samples if you sample at a certain frequency which happens to be twice the highest Fourier frequency. But, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it's a mathematical result. It's not at all intuitive. But that's the theorem. And we call the samples of a picture pixels. So a pixel is a sample of a, of a two-dimensional picture signal at a point. But we all know you can't see a point. point has zero dimensions. So a pixel is invisible. First surprise. (laughs) You're a magician. That's what it is. (laughs) The second thing that the sampling theorem says was, oh, if you want to get the original picture back from the samples, you spread the sample, this pixel, in case of pictures, you spread it with a certain shape. It looks kind of like this. So the spreading of the pixel is what makes it visible. Do you know what the spreaders are on, say, your cell phone? The spreaders are those little glowy spots across your display. They're display elements. They're not pixels. They're often called pixels, but they're not. The pixels are these invisible samples of zero dimensions in the background. And it's only when you spread them out with these little soft, fuzzy things on a display that you can see the original picture back again. That's the magic of the sampling theorem that says, Hey, even though you thought you threw away an infinity of information, no, you didn't because it's of there. the magic of the sampling theorem. It's still there, and we can get it back 10 years later on the other side of the planet. So, so Alvi, look, I want to talk about Pixar and some of your other background. You know, we're, in, in 2021, we're talking about, I mean, look, this event, India Joy, you know, north of 20,000 people from around the world attending an AVGC, right, animation, visual uh, effects, gaming, uh, and, and comic and it feels like we're getting to a point now where everything is incorporating in this creative element. And it makes me wonder when we think about the digital space, is it more art or science? 
or are they in tandem? Are they sort of tied at the hip together? In essence, are you an artist or are you a scientist? Well, I've always considered myself both, and I would say they're tied to the tied together at the hip because, in, in, in fact, that's kind of one of the points of my book that the art and the science of pixels develop simultaneously. Once people started making pictures with pixels, which was in 1947, by the way, um, immediately people started making art. So you just, you know, once you have a picture-making medium, the artist can't resist it. And I'm one of those artists. I started out oil painting when I was a kid. My uncle, George Gray, in New Mexico, I grew up in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and Clovis, New Mexico, and uh, he was an artist. And he would allow me, if I kept my mouth shut, to go into his studio and watch what he did. I was the only relative he would allow in his studio. And I had to be absolutely mum. But I learned how to stretch canvas and prepare the brushes and mix the, you know, I love this. I learned to love the smell of linseed oil and turpentine and so forth. And I learned how to oil paint. So I grew up oil painting and later acrylics. I even had a show once. I didn't sell anything, but one of my paintings got stolen, which I took as a <laughs> as a reward of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> a form of flattery, but, right? <laughs> but I was also really good at, at science. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned Las Cruces, New Mexico. What was right next door to Las Cruces, New Mexico was White Sands Missile Range. White Sands Missile Range shot off missiles. Every day, every week. So I grew up with missiles going off, arcing across the sky. And this is from the V-2s of World War. You know, the Werner von Braun's V-2s were brought to White Sands Missile Range to teach American rocket scientists how, how they work. So from then to now, rockets have been flying in one of my hometowns. So, you know, what I've basically done in my life is put those two things together. Let's go back to the let's go back to the beginning when we think about Pixar. I, it feels like look, I'll, I'll speak from a common man's position, which is, yes, there was animation before. We we know the the original sort of Mickey Mouse cartoons and things that we've seen in black and white, but something happened with Toy Story that feels like it was a a monumental shift. We didn't just go up one floor; we went up, you know, ten floors in a in a uh, in a high rise, right, or a skyscraper, if not more. Talk about the early days, um, and, and in essence, how lucky are we just as consumers, as audience members, and even, I think, as next-generation students in the digital arts for the efforts at Pixar, you know, from the early days? Well, you know, Pixar actually is a long story, and I tell a lot of it in, in my book, uh, even though that's not the main purpose of the book. It's still in there because that's who I am, right? So um, the group started, uh, well, there were two kind of places that started. One was Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, Xerox Park, where desktop computing, as we now know it, was being invented. I was there. And there was a paint program there built by my friend Dick Shelp. Paint program. When I saw that paint program, I got myself hired on at Xerox Park as fast as I could. This is a combination yeah. of painting and computers. Perfect, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and meanwhile, uh, another group was working over at the University of Utah on geometry-based ideas. 
And that would be my, one of those important ones was Ed Catmull, who would be the co-founder of Pixar with me many years later. So I got fired at Xerox Park because they decided not to do color, believe it or not. I said, you've got the future here. And they said, corporate decisions go black and white. I said, okay, goodbye. Sounds very and, uh, doesn't it? <laughs> you, know, it is. you know, I've been on the other side of the fence now, so I kind of understand their point of view too. But at the time, I was this young Turk, and I just could not believe it. <laughs> so I went off in search of the next frame buffer, we call it. That's a, what we call the, a memory made of pixels that you could see, a picture memories. And a, we would call it a graphics card today or a you know, graphics chip today. But then it was a refrigerator-sized thing costing a lot of money. And I, uh, an art, artist buddy in my, uh, of mine and I uh, found the next frame buffer at this most unusual place on Long Island called the New York Institute of Technology, which sounds like a university, but it was actually – private business run by a crazy rich man on Long Island. And in great get it was it was housed in the mansions along the North Shore of Long Island. These it was gorgeous. you know, for a kid from New Mexico, I just I get up every morning and pitch myself Am I in a movie? This is amazing. There are mansions <laughs> everywhere. We did video in one mansion. We did graphics in another mansion. A girlfriend lived in a third mansion. We lived I and my buddies lived in the tenants' quarters of the estate owned by David Rockefeller's wife's family, just to kind of show you the you you are painting a picture. <laughs> not not to go back to your roots with like, your uncle, but you're painting a picture. <laughs> so it's like, wow, this was this was our start, right? And this guy poured money on us. First one, Alexander Sherb. Everybody's forgotten about him, but he was the first man to pour money on us. He got us the first 24-bit pixels in the world. 24-bit pixels have 16 million color possibilities. Nobody had that before. We were the first people in the world to have 16 million colors, not just 200. And we went crazy, just went crazy, making art and videos and just going going for it. Take me inside that, not to, you know, in the mansion, but when you find out that you have access now, could you comprehend that many colors? I mean, when you, you sort of flippantly say, and I get that sort of this 16, you know, yeah, you think yeah, we could. I mean, so 200 is, you just can't do anything with 200. You mix color A with color B and it's some. It's, I couldn't do there anything is no, with 200 even in kindergarten. There's no either. mixture. There's no <laughs> mixture there. So, right. but with 16 million colors, you took color A, color B, and add them together, and there's one of the colors in the 16 million that is the mix. So we 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 just went crazy. Now this guy, just to kind of put this in economic uh, historic uh, context, Alexander Schur, the, the rich man, we had the, an 8-bit frame buffer, just 256 colors. It cost him uh, $80,000 in 1970 dollars. I said, if you want to stay ahead, which is what he asked me, get get me two more of these, and I'll cobble them together to make a 24-bit pixel memory, and then we'll be ahead of the entire world. Not knowing if he really understood what I was saying, but sure enough, he did that. He showed up. Basically, he spent $2 million in today's money on my say-so, and we just leapt out in front of the world and got and never looked back. That was the group that became Pixar eventually. You know, next 
we decided he did, he was making a, an animated movie called Tubby the Tuba, the old fashioned way. And he had this idea that, oh, maybe the computer can make this a more efficient process. That's the right idea, but he really didn't. He was, he was just ahead of his times is the most positive thing I could say. So when George Lucas came and said, come join me in Marin County, California, we, oh, here's a guy who knows how to, how to make movies. Not, now, at not what this. point, when, when was that? Was, was Star Wars? That was, out, uh, or? 19, that was, uh, Star Wars is out. That's why we knew who George Lucas was. I was going to say, you, you, we had, we had all jumped listeners. in my car on Long <laughs> Island and driven in Manhattan <laughs> to see this amazing movie star, Star Wars. And, uh, but never expecting that he would be the guy to take us the next step. We thought it would be Walt Disney Company. We were, Ed Campbell and I were total, fans of Walt Disney style animation from childhood. And we had learned animation from Walt himself on his weekly TV show. So what was so, that? So what, do you, do you remember the pitch? Do you remember George Lucas's pitch to you and your fellow colleagues? Like what was, what was his pitch to you? Because if you're going in, you're, well, you're that's Disney, a good right? question. Yeah. <laughs> we thought, we thought he wanted us in his movies to show you how far <laughs> off. Like, no, what he wanted, he had a vision. It just didn't happen to be our vision. His vision was to modernize the filmmaking, take it from the 40s and bring it into the 70s by going digital. And we said, oh, yeah, we can do that for you. You know, our idea being, okay, that's our ticket. That's the price we have to pay, hardware and software, in order to make content in a, in a major motion picture, which we really wanted to do using computer graphics, right? Thinking that he understood this because Star Wars, the first Star Wars, had our friend Larry Cuba's Death Star sequence in it, where they train with a black and white movie how they're going to attack the Death Star. That was classic computer graphics. So we said, okay, George understands computer graphics, and that's what he, why he wants us, because we're the best. Nope. <laughs> he did not get that. Uh, which finally dawned on me. But you know, I hired the best computer graphics people in the world because they, we all thought we were there to be in the movies. And people would just say yes before I got the question out of my mouth. Come join, you bet I'll come join you. So I put together this amazing team and waited for George Lucas to show up. He never showed up. And finally I went, oh my God, he doesn't know what he has. He, he doesn't get it either. Like the other guy didn't really get it. So he was working off, uh, off of 200 colors instead of 16 million. He, no, he just wasn't even, he wasn't digital at all. He knew that digital was an important way to improve editing, audio, but you know, he didn't really understand what we were about. So Paramount Pictures showed up and hired the special effects division of Lucasfilm known as Industrial Light and Magic to do special effects for their movies, Star Trek, not George's Star Wars movies, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And they wanted some of this newfangled computer graphics in their Star Trek II. Well, the guys at ILM says, well, we don't actually do that. But I think that's what the new guys next door, namely us, I think that's what they do. So they called me over. And the story goes on and on, but it's one of those meetings where I walk out 10 feet off the floor realizing this is it. This is the big break. We just landed the chance to get a scene, just 60 seconds, but an entire scene in a major motion picture that's going to make a lot of 
a lot of money, and a lot of people are going to see it. And that's what happened. Headroom is produced by Old Soul, a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy Matt at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. Shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L.com. And now, back to our guest. So talk about why Pixar. Was it that was it about having control in, in, in not being reliant on other people to recognize what they had in front of them, to your point about George Lucas, maybe not at the time understanding? The, yeah, it was, it was a forced play. It was a forced play? I, I, it was a forced play. George and Marsha Lucas got divorced after we'd been there uh, five years, four, three or four or five years, somewhere, something like that. Well, in California, half the money goes to each spouse. It's community property state. There's no question. Boom. So overnight, George Lucas loses half his fortune. And we're, you know, we're the working for the man. So when he loses half his fortune, that, that, that had impact. So I went into Ed. I said, Hey, Ed, we, we are going to get fired. George never really understood who we are. And he just lost half his fortune. He can't afford us anymore. Let's start a company, says I. Now, this is two nerds talking to each other. We didn't know anything about starting companies. <laughs> <laughs> we were middle managers of a research department, okay? So I said, let's start a company to give this. I said it would be a sin. I grew up Southern Baptist, by the way, so I can use words like sin pretty bluntly. Okay, so. <laughs> it did roll right off of your tongue, Alvy. <laughs> it oh, it's easy, yeah. And, and Ed was a Mormon, so it was kind of comfortable for him, too. So I said it would be a sin if we this, this – World-class group of, of creative geniuses, computer graphics geniuses dispersed. Let's start a company to make a home for them. Well, Ed reasonably asked, what's the company going to do? We knew that the computers weren't fast enough to do movies yet. Moore's Law wasn't there yet. He said, well, we've built a prototype uh, for George, a Pixar image computer, we called it. Let's do what Silicon Valley always does. Let's uh, capitalize that prototype and turn it into a product. I say this like we really knew what we were talking about. We didn't. We went across the street and bought How to Start Company books. I bought two. Ed bought two more. And the amazing thing is it worked, but it was not easy. There were, you know, we had to fund them. You have an idea, then you have to fund it. Okay, so we wrote the business plan. We went to 35 venture capital firms. They all said no. I mean, this is close to this is Silicon Valley, right? We were, we were, we were near mile wise to Silicon Valley. And because we were sexy, we were Lucasfilm. We got in the door to almost every firm on Sand Hill Road, which is the, cla- the, the classic location of venture capitalists in the San Francisco area. But not, they all turned us down. We just didn't fit any of their formulas for a startup company. We had 40 people just for starters and a product prototype already built. Then we decide, okay, we'll, let's make a strategic partnership with a large corporation. Well, 10 of those said no, except for General Motors and Phillips of the Netherlands who were willing to fund our company. We would, we would build uh, car designs, machine software for General Motors, and we would build medical imaging 
software for Philips. It fell apart right at the last minute. Because, do you remember H. Ross Perot? I sure do, yeah. H. Ross Perot was the branch of General Motors that we were dealing with. And while we were dealing downtown Manhattan, you know, making making this deal, we thought, the same, almost the same time uptown Manhattan, H. Ross Perot is telling the board of directors of General Motors they're a bunch of fools. That broke overnight in the Wall Street Journal, and everybody knew that anything that had to do with General Motors and H. Ross Perot was dead, and we were right there in that crack. You were right in the middle, yeah. We, we, so our 45 funding possibilities later, Ed and I are frantic because the one that we thought for sure was going to go didn't go. What are we going to do? So we're in a limousine coming back from, you know, going to the airport from this disastrous meeting in Manhattan. And we said, we came up with a Hail Mary idea. Let's call Steve Jobs. It's not that we didn't know him already. After he got kicked out of Apple, he invited Ed and me down to his mansion near Palo Alto. And I remember sitting out on the grass when Steve proposed that he buy us from Lucasfilm and run us as his next company. And we went, nah, we, we want to run our own company, but we'll accept your money as investment money. And he says, okay. But the deal with General Motors Phillips was almost done, everybody thought at about twice the valuation that Steve Jobs was willing to handle. Basically, he got laughed out of the Lucasfilm. Lucasfilm had to okay any of this. He basically got laughed out of the Lucasfilm offices. But we had met Steve Jobs, right? So <laughs> in our moment, 45 investment failures later, we had nice let's, let's We just called, we called him again and said, hey, Steve, make exactly the same offer again. Exactly half the valuation of General Motors and so forth. And he did. And Lucasfilm was so worried they were going to lose everything by then that they took the deal. And that's how we got Steve Jobs as our venture capitalist. He did not buy us, which he tried to tell everybody, but he was our majority shareholder. And the employees, all the employees I want to emphasize, own the rest of the company. So that's that's how Pixar got it start as a hardware company. We were building hardware, remember, for five years with this supposedly hardware genius on our board, Steve Jobs. And um, actually, it just didn't work. Uh, we failed, financially failed many times. We would have failed, except Steve was would not let that happen because he did not want to be embarrassed. I'm assuming this, that he just couldn't withstand the embarrassment of the next thing he did after Apple being a failure. So every time we run out of money, he would write us a check. He would tear Ed and me apart, but he'd write that check, take away some of our equity. And over time, sure enough, he had put in 50 million bucks, which was half of his Apple fortune at the time. And he indeed had bought the company, but from the employees over the course of five years. You know, I've got That's the real incredible. story of Pixar in this book. So it's, it's, <laughs> an, it. it's an incredible story, Alvy. What, what do you think when you think about young creators, right? So I have young children and I just look at them with their friends and I look at these conferences and what, 
what young people are doing all across the globe in this sort of digital space. And I'm amazed and I wonder, they feel like the next explorers of, of the frontier that, that is yet to be um, unearthed, right? And so what what is your perspective? Because you have such a unique background. You were there at the beginning, right? You you understood the change from Crayola to explosion of color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I like to tell kids, I was born before computers. I've seen this entire thing happen. I've seen Moore's Law from start to, to, to its current state. I've seen it all. It's been astonishing. So, okay. so what what is next, Alvi, if we think about this? What is next and what is a lesson when you think about sort of legacy building and, and sort of the sharing of that, that knowledge base and experience and wisdom? What What is a lesson that you think a young person that, you know, sort of the young Alvi Ray Smith that is in 2021 thinking about a career in graphics and animation and gaming and these sorts of things and esports? We see where it's just percolating everywhere. What is a lesson that they can take from your experience? Because there was a there were bold decisions made, right? I mean, there were some risky decisions. It sounds like, but we've yeah. all benefited, right? We, we as an audience, I think, and as young people thinking creatively, we've all benefited from from those like you um, and your peers along the way. So, what advice would you have for the young people uh, in your industry? It's a little hard to express, but behind everything that's been happening during my career and still happening now is Moore's Law, which in my formulation says everything good about computers gets 10 times better every five years. So it was one in 1965 when it got announced by Gordon Moore and when I made my first graphic image, by the way. It's now sitting, the Moore's Law factor is now sitting at 100 billion. So everything good about computers, low price, high density memory, size of the memory, how many operations they can do per second, so forth. Everything good about computers is now 100 billion times, 100 billion times better than it was in 65, 1965. And Moore's Law is still going. People are always saying it's going to die. I don't think so. Now, the second piece of that is we puny human beings don't know what an order factor 10, also known as an order of magnitude, is. I mean, we can think we can we can kind of predict what a factor of 10 will result in. But two factors of 10, not a chance. We just don't have the capability to do that. Moore's law has gone through 11 factors of 10 already, and it's going to hit a trillion, so 12 factors of 10 in three or four years. One way to say what I'm saying is I can't tell you. I cannot tell you what it's going to be like, except we're on this 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 supernova explosion of computational power that is beyond belief, and we've just got to write it and see where it takes us. And every young person today can not only guide that, you know, figure out what we can do with the next order of magnitude, but get in there and make, you know, be part of the com- uh, creator of what we can do. It's, it's, it's so hard to come up with examples because we just don't know how to measure it with our puny brains. It sort of but, feels like the, it's a blank canvas that just continues to it, – it's like an unending canvas that keeps growing as we want to – as we think of new ideas, new ways of expression. Is that fair? Yeah, it's um, – you know, I can tell you that 
by Moore's law, everything's going to be ten times better five years from now. And I'm sure of that. But what does that feel like? What does it mean? Now, I can give you some simple examples like, well, with another order of magnitude, we can probably just click on a movie and it'll download instantaneously. Well, that's kind of nice, but what's that feel like? When you could just do that, we can, you know, back when I was a kid, you couldn't, you, you could click on a picture. It would take sometimes an hour to show up. Now they're instantaneous or it feels like they're instantaneous because of Morris law. And we're, we're, we're so used to that. It's just, it's just part of the feeling of life, but it hasn't always been. Suppose movies go in there and virtual reality go in there and, uh, you know, if you, you ask for some specific things, I, I'm looking at, uh, at, um, what so-called mixed reality as a really exciting area. Um, I'm, I'm advising a virtual reality startup company in Silicon Valley called Baobab Studios just to kind of keep my hands in the entrepreneurial pie. You know, it's really exciting being around startup entrepreneurs. It's there. I know how scary that is, but also how you know what that feels like. We were talking about that is, <laughs> that's where, that's where the action is. And it, it, okay. So, and it keeps me apprised of where the latest technology is. So VR has become a reality in my lifetime. It used to be this thing I run, I would run screaming from. You'd have to put a bucket on your head and it was hot and sweaty inside <laughs> and the graphics sucked. I would see that. I said, I don't, I, no, I don't want to be there. <laughs> Now, you put the goggles on, it's pretty darn, pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Uh, Okay. Let's, let's do this, Alvi. Let's close on this. For those that are listening, what I'm experiencing in in just our video, and this is the power, right, of the pixel. um, And I have such a better appreciation, a greater appreciation for it now through this conversation. There is, and I say this as a great compliment, there is, there remains this childlike curiosity and, and pride that, that, is emanating from your 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 facial expressions, your experience in the conversation. Like this is this is not about the past. This is all about current and what could be. That there's this this professional and creative optimism. Am I am I right in my sort of my general assessment of you, just as a human being, where you are in your stage of life when you think about your legacy and all the things that could be before you? Oh yeah, you're you're right on. I- you know, what's annoying as you age is you <laughs> can't be part of it, and it keeps going. <laughs> Damn it. I've had my shot at it. <laughs> I could probably see the next maybe 10 or 20 years, but you, you know it's going to go away. That's that's what aging is. Oh, geez. That was my shot at it. <laughs> I hope I did a good job. What gives, you the, what gives you the most pride, Alfie, when you think about it? Because you know, Well, I'm bit- really proud of Pixar. No question about it. Yeah. What a, you know. That the, the, that group of geniuses has just not only cre- been cre- creatively art- uh, uh, artistically creative, but technically technically creative beyond belief, year after year after year after year after year. And you know they're 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 just riding the same Moore's Law wave as everybody else. But boy, what a show! You know, it's uh, it's 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 astonishing what they're doing. So I'm very proud. I'm proud of the fact that we didn't allow those two kinds of create creative people to look down at each other. If that makes any sense to you. 
Mm-hmm. Artistically created people are not – they're equal to in every way to technically created people. That's a requirement at Pixar. I've been places where the technically created people look down their noses at artistically created people. You can do that art and marketing stuff. No, 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 no. Or in a graphics arts house, the creatives look down their noses at the technoids. No, 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 no. Not allowed at Pixar. So we set up this culture that celebrates both with equal dignity. I mean, you, yes, there are different kinds of people and different kinds of creativity, but there's no hierarchy. That's, that's malarkey. Well, I, I love it because it's the power of what we've really been talking about is, is the impact um, of storytelling. And it continues to get deeper and broader and more expressive. And it's to, to the likes and the, of, of you and your colleagues and, and, you know, all the efforts that you, that you decided you made a conscious choice to go after and pursue. Uh, these were not just happy accidents, right? And so we thank you just, I think, as a, as a species for being able to tell stories in really creative ways because this is what brings as a species, together. wow. Well, if, if you think about it, we have a much better understanding and we can tell stories in different and deeper ways that are much more culturally relevant and mirror the experiences that people have in all parts of the world. And I think that's incredibly powerful and it's engaging, especially when we think about learning and young people. So it's, it's, it's been such a treat to spend some time with you. I want to make sure that people can go out and get your book. It's a biography of the pixel uh, via MIT press. Uh, again, what, what is a light? How can people get connected with you? Alvi, if you'd like, uh, whether it's Alvi Ray for country music opportunities. and songwriting. com <laughs> is my, uh, is my website. com slash digital light. Is the, is my site dedicated to the book. So well, the well, book plus annotations plus all kinds of other stuff. Well, it's been, you've been incredibly gracious with your time and your stories. Uh, and, and it's been a pleasure to, to present and share your passion, um, through the creative cons here in support of India Joy, where virtual is reality. Check it out at indiajoy.in. It is November 16th through the 19th of this year. I think it's going to be a great collection of world leaders in the AVGC space. I'm your host. Dr. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom. Headroom.